Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. The encounter we're going to look at today is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to read Mark's account in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. The account of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Jesus encountering the wealthy. Seems like it's hard to go by a news cycle without hearing something about money and the economy and how things are doing. I know all of us have have faced the challenges of rising inflation and what it means to our daily and weekly budgets. Uh, We know that, we feel that particular pinch And in terms of media and movies and all of those things, money seems to be the category or the area of the world that turns everything around. People will do all sorts of unethical things to get a little bit more money, to have a little bit more power and control. You can go back to the movie Wall Street with Gordon Gekko, who just wanted a little bit more, nothing Not what he had, or what he had was not enough. He just wanted more. See that from Disney's Moana to that little crab uh, who sings that song, Shiny, longing for something more, longing for something uh, more extensive in terms of wealth and in terms of what we gain. That has just permeated our contemporary culture. It's been around for a lot longer than that, by the way. It goes all the way back to this encounter that Jesus had with a young man who didn't have to worry about any of his daily needs being met. He didn't have to worry about where his next meal was going to come from. He was incredibly wealthy. And as he came to talk with Jesus, Jesus cut through his own understanding of what righteousness and rightness looked like so that Jesus could help him see what it would take for him to experience eternal life. It's a very poignant encounter. By the way, it's a very practical encounter for us because you know, we're a lot more like this rich young ruler than we are much of the people that have lived across uh, the centuries uh, of our world. We don't have to worry about where our next meal was going to, is going to come from. By every standard that we could ever use in terms of financial uh, blessing and wealth, we are the wealthy in our world. And so this encounter is one that should open our eyes and tug on our hearts and see what it is that Jesus had to say about this young man who came to him desiring an answer about eternal life. Read with me this story. Mark chapter 10 verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, notice this, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, the young man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You like one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. I want you to notice, first of all, there's some troubling things, by the way, this, with this text. This young man asked, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus answered him with the law, not with the gospel. And so that troubles us, to some degree rightly so, because we live in a, in a Protestant Reformation type view of biblical Christianity that salvation comes by faith alone, through Christ alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, and based on the Scripture. We believe that salvation does not come based on our works, based on our efforts, based on our law abiding, and yet that is the way Jesus answered the young man's questions. And what I want us to notice is this. When Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler about the law, he identified the self-righteousness that was keeping the ruler from eternal life. Jesus' goal here was not so much to give him the pat answer for what it means to inherit eternal life. He was cutting through the heart of a man who came to Jesus, I'm not sure, with as much honesty as the first reading of the text might appear that he came to Jesus with. Uh, One thing that we need to remember with Jesus' response here is that Jesus is fully God. Jesus doesn't just know what has been said to him based on tone of voice and conversation. He knows the heart of those who are speaking to him. He can see through the self-righteousness and the idolatry, and both of those, by the way, were present in this young man. He can see through that, and Jesus' answer was specifically chosen to cut through those areas of this young man's life that were keeping him from truly following God and trusting in Jesus alone. Uh, Alexander McLaren, in his commentary, he puts it this way. He said, This ruler addressed Jesus in a way which for few, or which for a Jew rather, was without parallel. In all the religious literature, there is no record of any rabbi being addressed as good teacher. To address Jesus in such a way savored of almost fulsome flattery. So Jesus began by driving him and his thoughts back to God. You see that in his demeanor. This rich young ruler, probably a synagogue ruler, possibly a member of the Sanhedrin, not a very old man, which is why he's called young, meaning that he had a measure of power and authority among the Jewish people. He had a measure of wealth, a significant measure of wealth, as the text will tell us. He came running to Jesus, fell on his knees, saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the response of someone who is flattering, not necessarily the response of someone who is truly humble. 
Not necessarily someone who really wants the answer that he's going to be given. He came wanting justification, self-justification, rather than the true answer that was to be given. That's why when Jesus says to him, go sell all that you have and you will find eternal life. That's why when we read that, we read that as, oh my goodness, is that what Jesus wants us to do? Is that an absolute, a universal expectation that everyone who follows Him is to, be, uh, is to give up everything and sell everything and become poverty-stricken? Jesus doesn't make that a universal command. That is a specific command to a specific person at a specific time in human history because this man's problem was his idolatry of wealth, we'll see that in a moment, and his self-justification, his self-righteousness that was dwelling within. Jesus knew that and He cut through the question of the man to get to the heart of the issue. Second, we need to remember that Jesus is not merely interested in outward response but in a full-life conversion. I want you to know something. Jesus does not invite us to pray a prayer. You can pray a prayer and that prayer will be, can be the means of forgiveness and repentance and life. But Jesus is not looking for someone to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and claim conversion. Jesus wants your life. Do you get this? This is the New Testament. This is Jesus calling us to follow Him. When He invites us to put our faith and trust in Him, it is not merely so we can hope, okay, I don't have to go to hell when I die. It is so that we turn our lives to Jesus in repentance and faith and follow Him fully with everything that we are and everything that we do. Jesus is not merely interested in someone saying, yes, I'll come after you for while it's convenient. Yes, I'll pray a prayer because that's an easy thing to do. Jesus is inviting full life, full-orbed conversion, which means that we turn and follow Him with everything that we are. Thirdly, I want you to remember where we are in the story of redemption. If you go over to Luke's Gospel, Luke wrote uh, the, the book of Acts. Uh, and he also wrote this encounter down in his particular gospel, this very same encounter. In this very same instance, this man comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? If you move all the way over to Luke, or into Acts chapter 16, verse 31, the jailer there, after Paul and Silas were in prison, asked, what must I do to be saved? The answer that Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Remember that story? Luke is not being inconsistent with himself, nor is he pitting Jesus against Paul. One of the things we need to remember is where we are in the story of redemption. And Jesus has not yet died on the cross. Jesus has not yet risen from the dead. Yes, He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Yes, He invited people to follow Him. But in terms of the means of justification, our faith in Jesus' meritorious act on the cross, His resurrection that offers us life, those events have not taken place. And so Jesus would not have looked at this young ruler and said to him, believe in me and trust in me and ask for forgiveness for your sins and you will have opportunity to have life. Jesus wouldn't have done that. In fact, when Jesus did talk about his death and his resurrection, not even those who had followed him for months, weeks, and years understood it. Read back through the accounts in the New Testament. Every time Jesus brought up His death and resurrection, or nearly every time, a follow-up comment is made, the disciples didn't understand. They weren't sure. They argued with Him. They debated what it was. So how would this man have any better idea of what Jesus was going to do? So Jesus didn't invite him specifically 
to believe in him for eternal life. He invited him to see his own sin nature. He invited him to see what was wrong in his heart and life. He invited him to take a long, hard look at the law. So Jesus said to him, you know the law, you know what you're supposed to do. And Jesus gave specific law commands. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't defraud one another. It's fascinating if you go back and look at those specific laws that Jesus mentioned. Jesus probably knew, I think he did know, that this young man was likely innocent with regard to those specific laws. That in those cases, this young man had probably not broken the law. Which he said, all these I have kept since I was a young man. What Jesus is doing is turning his attention back to the very purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to bring us justification, but to show us we have no hope of justification. The purpose of the law is not to give us a means of salvation. It's to show us that we need another means of salvation, someone who can keep the law perfectly. And this young man, his problem was he was trying to justify himself before God based on his behavior. Jesus left out several of the laws that I think were significant problems in this man's life. You shall have no other gods before me. Obviously what Jesus did when he said to the man, you lack one thing, go sell everything you have and follow me. Jesus was showing that there was a level of idolatry in this man's heart and life that was keeping him from Jesus himself. That was keeping him from following God. What we need, and the reason we need to take a long, hard look at the law is because the law will show us where we are flawed and why and how we need Jesus. John Calvin puts it this way, talking about the law. Therefore, if we look merely to the law, the result must be despondency, confusion, and despair, seeing that by it we are all cursed and condemned while we are kept far away from the blessedness which it holds forth to its observers. The law, if it is fulfilled perfectly, holds with it this hope that we can gain God's pleasure and approval and eternal life. That's why God gave us all the standards in the Old Testament. That's why He wrote out very clearly, this is who you are to be. The problem is, if that is the means by which we gain eternal life, and we honestly evaluate ourselves according to the law, we're going to find that we fall staggeringly short in some or several or many categories of the law which God says that we are to abide by. The problem with this particular young man is that when he looked at himself through the law, he looked at himself for self-justification not for a sense of humility and confession. It revealed the fact that his first question wasn't a very honest one. That really what he wanted is for Jesus to give him approval for his own obedience and behavior. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. If that's the way you're coming to God, if you want God to pat you on the back for the good thing you did yesterday and for how nice you've been in the last month or year or for how closely you align with several of the commandments, you're coming to God in a completely wrong pattern and wrong fashion. And Jesus will not justify that. In fact, what He'll do is He'll cut straight through that and show us that not only are we lawbreakers, which this man was on at least several occasions, he had another, he didn't worship God alone. He broke the first law, first of the Ten Commandments. He had other gods before God. He broke the second of the Ten Commandments. And he was a coveter because he wouldn't give away the stuff that God had blessed him with. So he broke the Tenth Commandment at least 
those three. He was guilty of breaking God's laws. He also did not love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and did not love his neighbor as himself because he loved his possessions more. So he broke the two great commandments that Jesus has acknowledged in other places in the New Testament. He was a lawbreaker and Jesus was cutting through this man's question to show him his need and show him his sin. Secondly, I want you to notice when Jesus spoke to the disciples about wealth in the kingdom, He identified the idolatry of money that keeps many from eternal life. One of the major problems with this young man was the fact that he would not give up his possessions for a relationship with God. He was going to hold on to what he had rather than follow Jesus. And then Jesus cuts to the disciples, transitions the commentary, and says to them, it is very difficult, might near impossible for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, scholars have spilt ink over that particular phrase. Was there a gate in Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle? Uh, uh, there just doesn't appear to be anything of that sort taking place. This is hyperbole from the lips of Jesus. It would be easier for a camel, a large animal, to go through a needle that is, that is, uh, that, that is used to sew thread. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it would be for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God by justifying themselves through their behavior and through their wealth. The reason Jesus said it is difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven is because in many cases and for far too many ways, those who are wealthy believe they've been blessed by God already. In fact, a very common Old Testament and New Testament idea was that wealth was an affirmation from God, a sense of blessing from God, and by the way, it absolutely can be. When a follower of Jesus, we looked at this in the end of 1 Timothy, when a follower of Jesus lives in a way that is consistent with the wisdom of Scripture, that does hard work, that saves, that gives, that spends in ways that are appropriate, that abides by a biblical affirmation of how to handle money, then it is not atypical for a Christian to experience financial blessing because they're following, we're following the prescribed methods for, that God gave us for handling money. The problem comes when we then think that God gave us that amount of money because He approves of our character and approves of our behavior and approves of the condition of our own heart. That's not true at all. God's blessings don't come that way. He doesn't look down at us and say, man, that's a really nice person. I'm going to give them a little extra blessing and wealth and, and financial approval. And the reason that that's really problematic as a worldview and the reason we have to be careful with that and the reason Jesus said it is easier for a rich man to get to heaven uh, or easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich man to get in, get in heaven is because when we transfer uh, money as a God, when we make it a God, when we make it an idol out of it, then what we're doing is we're putting it in the place of God. We're saying that the more important thing we need is to make sure that we have financial security and blessing and privilege and all of this and we put it in God's place and so here's what it does. We instead worship the thing rather than worship God. One of the things Jesus is doing in the text He's pointing out not only that this young man had a problem with the law, he was a lawbreaker and needed forgiveness, which he never admitted to. The young man never admitted to that. But Jesus was also pointing out that he was an idolater who needed repentance for his idolatry. 
And the disciples needed clarification on what that looked like. They needed to know, they needed to hear and see that if they put anything in the place of God, they were guilty of idolatry. And I'm going to tell you something, in today's age, in the 21st century, in the United States of America, there are far too many people around us in our culture, and some of them in our midst in our churches, who are not really worshiping God. They're worshiping money. They're doing what they do, not to please God with their finances, but to take care of themselves with their finances. They're trusting in their own level of work ethic and security. And I've seen that over the years, and it's applied in so many different ways. Some people can't help but work seven days a week. So they don't devote a day to the attention of of worship and God's presence and God's people. They have to work. They have to do this. Or they've worked six days a week and they take that day to do their other fun stuff. And that is a means, that's a, that's, a, that's a mirror in our hearts and lives to show us that oftentimes that means we've got something else that's more important than who God is. We've become idolatrous. I'm going to tell you something. There are people all around us, all around us, you know them. Some of them you play golf with. Some of them you work with. Some of them you're neighbors with. Some of them you have labored alongside of. Some of them are in your relational circles. Some of them are in your activities of leisure. You know what they've done for their entire lives? They've made an idol out of money. And because that idol is in place, they won't turn their hearts to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. You know what it's going to do? For many, it's going to keep them from eternal life. Here's why those find it so difficult to come to God. Because we live in this day and age where you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you work really hard, you earn your own way, you make your own way, and some people have been gloriously blessed by intelligence or hard work or ethic and all of those things, and they have a measure of financial security. But when you translate that picture into spiritual life, it falls staggeringly short. Because you can't pull yourselves up through your own bootstraps. You can't work your way into God's favor. You can't make yourself right with God through your own intelligence or your own hard work. And what Jesus is showing us with this encounter with the rich young ruler is he is trying to get us to see that if we think our measure of effort will get us there, we're going to walk away sad. Because we're going to fall short of God's expectation and God's standard. Thirdly, let me show you this. When Jesus spoke about following Him, He invites us to reject our self-righteousness and idolatry and receive salvation and eternal life. So what did He say to the rich young ruler? He said, go sell everything you have and come follow me. What's Jesus inviting of all of us? He's inviting us to see that if we line our lives up against the law, we're going to fall short. He's inviting us to see that if we put anything else in the place of God, we're going to fall short. If we're guilty of idolatry, whether it's self-righteous idolatry, I'm good enough, or whether it's financial idolatry, money's in the lordship place of my life, the only way we can identify those things in our lives is by getting close to Jesus. I wonder if the story would have been different. If like Matthew, when Jesus said to Matthew, leave your money table, 
and come follow me? I wonder if that man had said, yeah, I'll come follow you. You know what would have happened? He would have witnessed the works of Jesus and heard the words of Jesus. And eventually he would have seen the death of Jesus and experienced the witness of the resurrection of Jesus. And he might have come to realize that his own sinfulness was what needed to be washed away. He might have come to realize that his own idolatry was what needed to be changed. So what do we do? Folks, we get near Jesus. The best way to discover if there are idols in your heart, if there's a measure of self-righteousness that's in your life, if you're anything like this rich young man or anything like any who put things in front of God, the best way to identify that is to get close to Jesus. Because I promise you, Jesus will show you if there are things in your life that He does not approve of. Let me give you three specific applications that I want to draw you to as we close this sermon. First, Give generously to examine your heart for the idol of money. Jesus is not making a universal application when He tells the rich young man, go and sell all that you have. Jesus is not telling every single Christian under the sound of my voice or every single Christian across planet earth that they need to go live like Mother Teresa and set apart all their finances, all their blessing, all their wealth and serve the poor. Mother Teresa did that. She effectively lived a life that glorified God by setting aside wealth, but even she, in her service to the poor, requested aid from those who had financial means. And God used the aid of many who had financial means to support the work of Mother Teresa in caring for the poorest of the poor in India. It's not wrong for us to have a measure of wealth. It's not wrong. That is not God saying to us that we automatically have idolatry. But we need to regularly examine our hearts for whether or not we are putting that measure of financial security in the place of God. And one of the ways that we can do that is by giving generously. Some of us have way more than we need. So let's find ways to share it with others. Some of you do that. I'm not trying to preach at you in some kind of legalistic fashion. This meaning, honestly, that needs to be a regular part of self-examination for us in the 21st century West as followers of Jesus. We need to regularly examine whether or not we've put the things out of order in our lives. And one of the ways we can do that is by giving generously. It's why Jesus said to the disciples, Peter said to him, you remember? Hey, we've left everything and follow you, Jesus. I left my fishing nets behind. You're my support system. I don't have any other means. Jesus said, I'll take care of you. That's what he said to him. Read that section. I know what you've given up to follow me. And I will take care of you. I will be your provision. I will meet your needs. Folks, here's the reason Jesus says that to us. And here's the reason we ought to give generously. Because we can't trust and financial security, we have to trust in Jesus. And when we get those out of whack, we get our spiritual life out of whack. Jesus is inviting us to trust Him. And one way to do, to do that is to give generously. Let me give you a, a second application. All of us need to do this, but particularly those of you who are here today who may not yet have become followers of Jesus. Evaluate your life according to the law so the gospel will make sense. I don't think Jesus in a very specific way, invited this man to the gospel. I think Jesus spoke the law to this man. Because this man wasn't ready for the good news of redemption and the good news of the gospel. Because he wasn't willing to recognize that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. 
before the gospel makes sense, before the good news of Jesus makes sense, that He died on the cross for our sins, that He rose from the dead so that we could have life, before that makes sense, we have to recognize that God is holy and His expectation of us is absolute perfection according to the law. And when we recognize that and look at our lives in light of the law, here's what we find. We find that we're not going to make it if we're relying on our own goodness. If we're relying on our own comparative righteousness, whether it's to the law or towards someone else. When we examine our lives in light of the law, do you know what we do? We come, we come back and we plead the grace and mercy of Jesus. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, people sometimes say to me, I would like to be a Christian, but will I have to do this? Will I have to give up doing that? Will I have to pray or give up sex or quit my job or change my views? Certainly questions like this have some legitimacy, he says, because you do need to consider what it will cost you to become a Christian. Jesus Himself tells us to count the cost of discipleship. But I'm afraid many people want to negotiate the cost rather than count it. That is, they're willing to give up things, but they won't give up the right to determine what those things are. They want to be in a position to do ongoing cost-benefit analysis on various kinds of behavior which keeps them in the driver's seat on the throne of, the li- of life, as it were. He heard a Bible teacher put it like this, when it comes to following Jesus, the hardest thing to do is to give in. Folks, it, it would do us good to regularly examine our lives according to God's standard of perfection. Not so that we can beat ourselves up with guilt, but so that we can constantly recognize that we need Grace, mercy, and forgiveness. I'll give you a third application. Because Jesus knows you and loves you, you can follow him. When that young man realized what Jesus had asked of him, Jesus looked at him. The text here in Mark's gospel says he loved him. He loved him knowing he was self-righteous. He loved him knowing he was idolatrous. He loved him knowing he was going to walk away and not follow Jesus. Jesus loved him. Because Jesus knows you. He knows what you thought this morning. He knows what you did yesterday. He knows how you acted this week. He still loves you. And He invites you to follow Him. Let me illustrate it this way. A number of weeks ago at Vacation Bible School, I had the opportunity to talk with our children about putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And I used an illustration that I want to use this morning. I gave myself a report card related to the Ten Commandments. And so I went through my own life and I explored those Ten Commandments and I gave myself grades. They're imperfect grades because I'm an imperfect person. But to be quite honest with you, there are a couple of the Ten Commandments that I don't think I struggle with too much. So I gave myself some A's and B's. And there are a couple of the Ten Commandments, and I'm not going to tell you which, all, which they are. That's between me and the Lord. But there are some in your life that I didn't do so well on. Okay? That I was not fully righteous with regard to how I was obeying the law. So, here's the problem. If my report card is anything less than perfection, it's not enough. 
That's what the gospel tells us. It doesn't tell us that we need to be better than the person sitting next to us. It doesn't tell us that we need to be better than the people that lived before. It doesn't tell us that we need to be better than most. It tells us that we need to be absolutely perfect. And if we're flawed in one area of the law, Jesus said, we've broken all areas of the law. So my report card may not be all F's, but ultimately it is an F because it's unfulfilled. It's imperfect. But Jesus has a report card too. The Bible says that Jesus in his report card came not to abolish the law, Matthew 5, but to fulfill the law. And if you look at the New Testament, he is the perfect person that came and without sin faced temptation and was able to die on the cross. Now here's what the Bible says about Jesus' report card. Not only is it absolute perfection, 100% perfection, but here's what the Bible says about us, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus alone, we get His grades. We get His righteousness. He takes our sinfulness. We get His perfection. We get things that we don't deserve. Not because we ever deserve them, but because God wants to give us forgiveness and eternal life. That young man in this story missed that opportunity to receive the perfection of Jesus because he wouldn't see how imperfect he really was. If you're here today and you've not yet followed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're here today and you're holding on to some measure of self-righteousness, if you're here today and you realize that according to the law, you're not right, you're not perfect, Jesus is inviting you to follow Him. He's inviting you to receive His perfection so that you can be cleansed and have eternal life. In a minute, Christian, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper and we're going to celebrate what God has done for us. But this invitation is for those of you who are lost. If you've not yet trusted Jesus as Savior, I would invite you to respond at this invitation. Become a follower of Christ. Christian, I would invite you during this time of song and remembrance to do some evaluation, examination. Some confession as we prepare for the Lord's table. Stand with me if you will. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you that you have given us what we do not deserve in the death of your Son Jesus on the cross, His perfect righteousness that we have not earned. Heavenly Father, I pray for any in the room today who have not yet trusted Jesus to be their Savior. I pray for their soul and their salvation. Pray for them to experience conviction in life. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would redeem them and rescue them. Pray, Lord, for us as followers of Jesus. I pray that you would give us clear sight into our own hearts and lives, whether we're guilty according to the law of a sinfulness we need to confess and repent and turn away from, or whether we're guilty of an idolatry, putting something in your place. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd cut through our own wickedness to show us the regular repentance and confession that needs to take place in our souls as followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 